All right. Well, welcome back. We're going to really shift gears from talking about secular humanism and secularism from last week. I was sad to be out of town for that, but I got to listen to it, uh, listen to the recording and hear all the great stuff that you guys talked about last week. Instead, we're going to talk about uh, New Age spirituality, which has some things that you'll see kind of overlap with secularism. Uh, like a lot of worldviews, there's a lot of subtle things that you see. Yep, I see that in that, that view and this view, how it contrasts with Christianity. Uh, but this one's obviously a little bit different, talking about New Age types of things. But before we get into that, just as a point of review, did you notice anything last week talking about secularism that had some overlap with Islam in the sense that it you know, differ, they, they agreed with each other in one sense and how they disagree with what the Christian worldview says. Anything you guys noticed last week that was common between those two? What about the view of mankind? What is the view of both of those religions that mankind is basically, what was that? Somebody said it. Yeah, mankind is basically good, right? Exactly. Islam said the same thing. Secularism would say there is no objective good, but we, we start out fine and then we just get worse because of culture, because of society. So that's kind of common there. There's also one with respect to the Bible. What, what did both of those views hold that we talked about, especially with Islam, that was common with um, Mormons? And, and by the way, a couple weeks ago, I kept saying LDS. So that's the Latter-day Saints, which is kind of the new term for, for Mormons, and I didn't really explain that, so sorry about that. But what's the commonality there with respect to the Bible that Mormons believe... Uh, Islam would believe the same thing, and, and secularists point this out as a, a flaw of Christianity with respect to the Bible. It's incomplete. It's corrupted, right? O over time, it has changed. It's that telephone game that, hey, you have no idea what they said in the beginning because it's changed over and over again. And if we have time at the end, I'll play this video of uh, Deepak Chopra, and we're going to talk about him a lot today, where even someone who's very smart, who's made a great deal of has a lot of influence and has made a lot of money through that influence, uh, still holds some of those same views about how the Bible was transmitted over time. Has anybody heard of Bart Ehrman? I think Rick has talked about him before. A couple of folks have. Yeah, he wrote a book called uh, Misquoting Jesus, and it's a very popular book. He actually used to be in the business of textual criticism, so looking at how uh, the Bible is passed down over time and completely changed course, which when, when that happens to somebody... Uh, whether it's someone who deconstructs their faith, you hear about that sometimes. When somebody has that radical change of, well, I was a Christian, but now I figured out that it was false. It's always worth looking in a little bit deeper, like what happened? There was, there was something that took place, either a desire to be able to do something that Christianity says is not, not what is okay under what God's law says, or there was something else. Uh, I don't know Bart Ehrman's story, but there was something that caused a very drastic change in his life. And now he, he says in his book that there are more than 300,000 errors in the manuscripts that form the New Testament. That's more than the number of words that are in the New Testament. So let's say your friend, your, your child, your grandchild, your neighbor comes over and is like, hey, I, I heard about this guy, Bart Ehrman, and did you guys know that there's more errors in the New Testament manuscripts than there are actually words in the New Testament? If you haven't heard that before, if you haven't been inoculated to that idea like Rick talked about last week, your first response might be, no, that can't be true. That's not right. It's a very powerful statement, right? Because it's accurate. It's actually true. Now, the punchline is you have to understand what are those differences? What are those errors? How did he come up with that number? 
And as you start to look at it, you see the vast majority of them are errors in transcription, things that don't quite match, but it's very clear what the original meaning actually is. And what is one of the ways that you can tell that there's an error in one manuscript versus another one, and which one is correct? When you have a whole bunch of manuscripts, right? That's part of the way that you can tell this one's an error because it doesn't agree with these other thousands of manuscripts. So it's actually because of the bulk of evidence that allows us to point out things that are not exactly the same, but they don't differ in the major issues. But some of those things, you know, if, you're, if your young person comes home or they heard about this YouTube video that Bart Ehrman put out that talks about how the New Testament isn't reliable, man, that could really shake things up, right? Especially if you think, there's no way, that can't be true. But it is true, but you've got to understand the context to it. So all that to say, there's a common thread in all of these worldviews where they have to attack the veracity of the Bible, right? So as Christians, if that's a common point of attack, how important is it for us to understand, well, hey, I've, I've heard that before, let's talk through that, or can you show me where that came from and we can talk about it. So don't be caught off guard. There is no gotcha moment that is coming from somebody that magically discovered the, the thing that sweeps out Christianity at the knees, but we need to be prepared for that, right? It's because that is just such a common attack. What about this? Where have you noticed the ideas of secular humanism in the world around us? As people try to live out those ideals, they do what, what uh, Greg Kokel calls bumping into reality. When you live by a worldview, you're going to have to see the consequences of that and see if it actually matches up with reality and what you see around you. Do you see any things recently, whether it's in the news or otherwise, where people are trying to adhere to an idea of secularism but you see as it actually plays out that it just won't work. Anything over the past week that stands out? I'll let you think about it for a minute. I'll give you an example here in a second. Um, kind of the bad news is the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that Rick talked about, they're growing, especially among young people in the West, they're growing at a pretty alarming rate. And the, the fallout is everywhere. Um, he talked about that poem by Friedrich Nietzsche, The Madman. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at that last week, but it's pretty prescient. But what he talks about of, you know, he's obviously was not a Christian, but he talks about what the consequences are when you get rid of God, when you've wiped him away, what is that going to look like? And you see that playing out in culture and society. Here's some uh, statistics, you know, CDC, the veracity of that I can't really talk to, but here's from 2021 what they said. 30% of high school girls that were surveyed in 2021 seriously considered attempting suicide. 50, so that's nearly a third in 2021. 57% and 29% of girls and boys, respectively, reported persistent feelings of sadness, sadness or hopelessness. Among teens that are LGBTQ, uh, man, ongoing and extreme distress was how they described themselves. 22% had actual suicide attempts within the past year. So we know that if you try to deviate from outside what God's design is for us to flourish, we know there's going to be consequences. Secularism would say, do whatever you want, do whatever makes you happy, but then we see the consequences of that, especially in the form of young people, right? Because that's where the, the, the rate of religious nuns is growing. They're told there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no telos, there's no meaning to your life. Go and flourish, and then this is, this is what we see. 
So that's kind of a downer, but here's the good news, okay? So if we're in fact created in God's image and everybody has to live in that world that God created, every false worldview is going to really struggle at, at explaining things that it bumps into, that bump of reality that we talked about. The world around us, whether it's the created world or the spiritual world that we see inside of ourselves, that all testifies in favor of God's truth, and that's to our advantage. So as Christians, we should understand how to do that and embrace those things because none of those things are a problem for us. We can explain sin and brokenness. Those, those terms actually mean something. And secularism, there's no justice. There's no right or wrong. You might not like murder, but you can't say it's wrong, right? If, if everything is secular, then... What do you mean? Those terms don't even mean anything. Here's other things that are encouraging. Young people are seeing that I know that this is true. Maybe I don't know how to understand it as a Christian, but I know the information is there, and there's organizations that want to provide that, either inside of the church or, or otherwise. And I'm not, I'm talking about reality apologetics. This isn't an endorsement by Bellevue. I'm just talking about this as one example. But here's some statistics on that. So this, this past year, they were sold out in California, 2,300, uh, 1,300 in Seattle. In November, in Minneapolis, they had almost 4,000 young people. And these are not like local people. They're coming in from multiple states to go in and hear about apologetics, which probably a lot of older people or middle-aged people would say, I I've heard of that term, but I'm not even that interested in what it is. That probably wouldn't qualify, obviously, for the people that are in this room. But there's a huge desire for it. The one next week in Dallas is sold out with overflow only, and there's two more left that are for this year. Here is uh, the topics. So this is not where you go and get free food and get entertained. These are some of the breakout sessions. I don't know if it's tough to read that in the back. What's the truth about suicide, tactics in defending the faith, homosexuality and transgenderism, truth and compassion. Uh, they're talking about reforming the abortion narrative. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, progressive Christianity and those type of topics. So these are just the breakout sessions. The overall topics have to do with, with reality. People that have um, left the faith, and for what reason, deconstructed their faith is kind of the common term for it. How do we know what is true and right and be grounded in, what, in those things so that that doesn't happen? So that's the encouraging thing to me is that there's a huge desire for this. So what does that mean for us in this room? Chances are there's a lot of people inside of Bellevue that don't share your, your same understanding of how apologetics is powerful, how it equips you for your own Christian walk, how it enables you to share your faith more effectively. So it's really on us to be kind of ambassadors to even people that we know inside of Bellevue to say, hey, I want to help incorporate this into my life group, into my kids' life group, looking for those opportunities, because you don't have to be a wizard in apologetics by any means. The material is there, but we just have to realize that it makes a difference and figure out how we can share this with more people. Okay, so there's more of the good news. Like Rick talked about, if we are not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then we're passively absorbing a false one. So it does take work, uh, but reality is on our side, thankfully. Okay, so new spirituality. Going way back, and actually goes further back than this, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The historical roots are from a poem called the Bhagavad Gita. I had to practice that one. Uh, it's a song of the Blessed One. It was written about 2,000 years ago. Between, It's a story about two individuals. It is a poem, but it's meant to communicate some much deeper truths, and it's a major source of truth for uh, Hinduism. What it says, basically, is that what actually exists is an eternal, non-personal, all-encompassing self 
The difference is that's a capital S self, S self, not the one that we're used to, which describes uh, the individual, the autonomous self. That's actually the problem. So we want to get rid of that version of the self to, to find the encompassing all self. And if that doesn't make any sense, you're not alone. We'll talk more about it in a second. The way that poem describes reality, even for the people that don't really understand where it came from, and maybe loosely even understand the idea behind it, that's grown into something that is held by millions of Americans now. So it's important to realize some of the stuff I'm going to talk to, I might say, refer to it a little bit lightheartedly, but this is something that is uh, Christians are buying into. Lots of people are actually believing this worldview. And so be thinking as you hear these things, okay, that sounds really silly to me, but how would I talk to somebody who actually holds that view? How would I ask them questions to draw out the problems with it and communicate why that doesn't really fit with reality or why that's not accurate. Uh, let's see, we talked about that. It, it repurposes these old ideas into a new path to find meaning via enlightenment, and that's kind of what uh, new spirituality is talking about. So how do we define it? It's not easy to do because the core beliefs are not really well defined. It's kind of like trying to nail jello to the wall. If it's not something that's really firm, you can't really figure out like, okay, I don't really know where to address this because it's just kind of a bunch of broad ideas, but they're not really well-defined ideas, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about in a minute. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the New Age movement, um, transcendentalism, neo-paganism, new consciousness, or just spirituality. Have you heard that phrase? Well, I'm not religious, but I'm, I'm just spiritual. That's probably the more common way versus I've never heard somebody say, I'm kind of into transcendentalism, right? It's usually just I'm more of a spiritual person. So Christians, we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Secularists trust in the scientific method. Marxists believe if we get rid of capitalism, that's going to redeem things. Muslims consider the creed of Islam worth living for. And postmodernists, as you'll talk about next week, think that being skeptical and uh, rejecting all other nar narratives is kind of their meta-narrative. But this one is different. So how do, we, how do we define hope and purpose for new spirituality, which I'm just going to call NS from now on? It's generally just a pantheistic worldview, which we'll explain, that teaches everyone and everything are connected through divine consciousness. It's kind of an ethereal idea, but everything is spiritual. So as opposed to secularism or materialism or matterism, or different ways of talking about that, where everything is just stuff, right? There is nothing spiritual. This is just the opposite. So everything is spiritual. We know from 2 Corinthians 10.4, where it talks about the weapons of our warfare are not just physical things, right? We're fighting in, in spiritual terms. There's both. There's both spiritual and there's physical things in God's created world. This is saying there's no physical things. It's just all spiritual. So here's a quote from Deepak Chopra. You probably recognize him. He's written a lot of books. Uh, Oprah is a big fan of his and has him on quite a bit. Here's what he says. All around us people ache with emptiness and yearning. And I want you to listen to this and think, does some of that sound kind of appealing? Does it kind of resonate with some things that we think are true? He says, there's a vacuum to be filled, and it's a spiritual vacuum. What other word really fits? Only when people are given hope that this ache can be healed will we truly know what the future holds. Let science join in the cure, because otherwise we may wind up with marvels of technology serving empty hearts and abandoned souls. And he, uh, unlike Christianity, where we say our authority comes from somewhere else about what is true, you'll notice a lot of the authority within New Age spirituality is really not defined, right? It's, it's just from different people that are primary speakers of that worldview, and Deepak is one of those, and we'll get into a few more in a minute. 
So where does that hope come from that can heal the ache? It basically comes from a rejection of traditional religion and an embrace of our divinity, power, and God-likeness. We'll talk more about the distinction between traditional religion versus normal, and that should be a question. If somebody says, well, I believe this because it's, you know, I reject traditional or normal types of religions, that would be a good question to ask. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Can you explain the difference between the two if that's such an important distinction? So if you've heard of Rhonda Byrne, I've seen so many people reading this book, but I, didn't, I had no idea that this is what it pertained to. Has anybody recognized that cover? I've seen it, but I didn't realize that that's what this was about. Here's what she says. The secret means that we are creators of our universe and that every wish that we want to create will manifest in our lives. Lots more quotes to come from her. Despite the major differences, many Christians have actually been taken by these ideas because there's a lot of positive references to God and Jesus Christ. What does that remind you of? A little bit of that in Mormonism and Islam. You kind of see the same trend, right? Satan isn't dumb. He knows all the way back to the garden that if you take what is true and twist it a little bit, you either say, God did not say, or did God not say, and then just change it a little bit. So go from denying what God said to distorting it just a little bit. But keep enough truth so that it sounds good. That's what you want to do if you really want to capture people. And you see that, again, with new spirituality. In Acts uh, 17.11, Paul you know, praises the Bereans, right? Because they tested what they learned against the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Wouldn't it be great if Baptists or just Christians as a whole were known, this is what they do. They take the scriptures and say, hey, I, I don't have the scriptures memorized, but I always go to that as a source. What does it say about this? Nope, it doesn't line up. Then, then we reject it. But instead, because we don't know the scriptures, we don't go back to that as a source. We'll get somebody that sounds good and sounds kind of spiritual and, and sprinkles in a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of God, and that's good enough, and then we, we bite off on these kind of ideas. And that's, as you'll see, that's happened quite a bit. By the way, if you know somebody that is reading this book, hopefully it's not a life group leader that's talking about it or you know something like that, but... Don't go, you know, top rope right away like, oh, are you studying heresy? I mean, is that, what you're, is that what's going on? Trying to learn more about, you know, false gospels. Ask those questions like, what, what are you reading about? And what, what do you think about that book? And see if you can discern what do they think about it? Is it just a popular book that they heard somebody recommended to them? Or do they actually uh, believe what it is talking about? And start that conversation. The roots go back to transcendentalism. So what is that? That's a religious and philosophical movement from the 1800s. It was a reaction against rationalism. That sounds familiar. We're going to talk about postmodernism next week, right? And organized religion. So same song, different words, uh, same type of attack against what Christianity would, would hold to be true. Human he- beings are inherently good. We've heard that before. Nature is fundament- fundamentally divine. Uh, some of these poets from the 1800s, Emerson, Thoreau, believe that human beings are inherently good until corrupted by society, especially through organized religion, and politics, which is interesting that those two things kind of get used as a way to say, well, we don't believe these people because they are part of an organized religion and have some role in in politics. And we'll talk more about politics in a second, but that distinction of organized religion is a way of kind of discounting other views and saying we're different, 
But again, it's worth asking, like, what do you mean? Why is that so, why do you think that's an important distinction if somebody were to point that out? Dickinson, Whitman, uh, Eddie, those are other writers that believe the same thing. And I didn't know that. I remember when we read a lot of their stuff in school, I didn't know that's kind of the worldview that they were coming from. But as this continued on, especially in the 1960s, they merged pop psychology, self-help, meditation, and good old-fashioned health and wealth material in the 1960s, eventually culminating in uh, this book, The Secret, which has sold 19 million copies translated into 46 languages. That's wild. Like For, for perspective, um, and I'm not putting them in the same category, but Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, he sold about that many books. I mean, this obviously resonated with some people, and you can think through, as we talk through the material, why is this so appealing to people, and you'll be able to see why. Um, she is a, I think her net worth is around $100 million, so she obviously could point to her success and say, well, this is because I'm, I'm living this out, um, but we'll talk to some more inconsistencies as far as how this, this worldview um, gets carried out. It feeds off a dissatisfaction with organized religion. We talked about that. And this is interesting. Uh, Chopra, Deepak Chopra claims that science has advanced to the point where religion has been revealed as nothing more than primitive superstition. So science figured that out. That is interesting. Do you remember last week, Rick talked about a conversation with a young lady who said, well, you know, science, science has already answered that. Science really gives us the answers we need there. There's really nothing else. And that's an idea of scientism or naturalism where there is only science, science can explain everything. But obviously, when, as soon as you bring up things that are real, love, justice, like how much does justice weigh? Like can you give that material properties? Obviously you can't, but we know that those are things that are true and exist. This is another type of category error of saying science has proven that religion is just superstition. So if you think about this worldview that says everything there, there is nothing that is material. Here's a, a field of study that only deals in material things, science. Chopra is saying science has actually showed us that religion isn't necessary. So he's really trading on several categories there to try to excuse why we don't need organized religion at all. He says religion cannot resolve this dilemma. It has had its chances already, but spirituality can. We need to go back to the source of religion. That source isn't God, it's consciousness. Again, it's kind of hard to understand, like, what does that mean? And what, what is your authority for saying something like that? Uh, but that's one of the things about new spiritualities. There's, just, there's no need to defend any of these things as, a, as an authority. You just basically say that they're so, and they, they fit in with the worldview. Here's the problem about complaining about organized religion. Religion is just a set of beliefs about the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, so how do advocates of new spirituality get away with not being religious? Because they obviously have answers to those things. So do you see how you can't really complain about religion, but also say, here's our views that could also fit inside of the description of a religion? So how about people that uh, are buying into this? 20% of Americans claim the spiritual but not religious uh, designation. They have interest in mysticism, they have negative opinions of churches and clergy. And spiritual, spirituality, it sounds free, it sounds accepting and tolerant, right? You can be spiritual but not really have to hold any sort of firm beliefs. Religion seems judgmental and boring. 
So spirituality kind of allows you to take the best of what you want and skip out on the stuff that might be offensive to people. There's somebody named Melissa Daugherty. I'll put a, uh, I think it's actually in your notes. There's a reference to some of her materials. She grew up in a, a new age, new, new spirituality type of home and eventually was able to, to leave that and became a Christian. And so now she's a really great advocate for being able to speak to that worldview and the differences. And she actually talks a lot about how this view is starting to creep into uh, church teaching, especially uh, progressive Christianity, because um, and we can talk more about that later. But she's really a good resource to look to if you want to see more about this particular topic. But it's something that we need to be aware of and watching out that this doesn't creep into our own doctrine within our churches. Spirituality enables people to be interested in what lies beyond, but you don't have to grasp challenging doctrines. You don't have to apologize for things that happened back in the Crusades, like, oh, I'm a Christian, but that wasn't my fault a long time ago. Even among would-be secularists, spirituality is cool. So that's not a badge of honor. You know, if, if secularists say, yeah, you can practice that, that doesn't bother me at all, that should actually tell you you don't really have much of a belief that holds to something that is concrete or definitely not threatening to people that believe in secularism. So what does it teach? Everything is consciousness. Eckhart Tolle, one of the world's uh, main spiritual teachers on this, he says this, the whole is made up of existence and being, the manifested and the unmanifested, the whole and God. So when you become aligned with the whole, you become a conscious part of the interconnectedness of the whole and its purpose, the emergence of consciousness into this world. You guys followed that, right? So if this is how you feel, you read something like this, and you're just kind of like, I, I don't follow that. You're not alone, but the big picture is I and me kind of go away as, as far as identifiable individuals go. They don't exist. There is no longer an I or a me. This whole premise you recognize from Star Wars, right? George Lucas knew this worldview, and he said, I'm telling an old myth in a new way. So it didn't seem like from what I read that he was trying to be a proponent of or encourage new spirituality, but obviously that's what he was talking about. So he took this idea and put it into the force, right? There is no I, there's no me, there's just the force that's in everything, it's in everyone, it's in the ground, it's in the rocks that we lift up and stuff like that. So that's kind of where that worldview fits in there. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about pantheism, which is obviously in Avatar, but you see this in other, other writers as well. So here's what uh, Deepak says for these qualities of pure consciousness. I want you to read these and think, do these describe an inanimate, mindless force? Or are these normally qualities that you would ascribe to a person, an individual? He says, pure consciousness is silent and peaceful, self-sufficient, awake, possessing infinite potential, self-organizing, spontaneous, dynamic, blissful, knowing, and whole. Would you use those to describe a mindless force, something that is non-personal? To me, that's like saying, what does blue smell like? It's a category here. You're using things to describe a person, but you're trying to ascribe those to an impersonal force, and that's essentially what he's doing. If you take those same qualities and apply them to a person, it sounds like you're talking about a god, doesn't it? Knowing, whole, spontaneous, self-organizing, infinite potential, but they don't believe in that sort of a personal God. So um, 
consciousness is, is the impersonal force, and your experiences about God are personal, but that's it. There is no personal God that interacts with you. In contrast, we know from Scripture, God is complete, self-determined, self-existent. Francis Schaeffer says that he's infinite personal, and obviously there's a clear contrast between uh, that and what Chopra is talking about. Any questions so far? Very different from <laughs> secularism and even Islam, which is easier to kind of define and say, okay, I understand what you believe. I know how I can address that. This is kind of a different animal. They also believe that every person is God. So we're not individuals, but we're part of the consciousness, the divine interconnected essence of reality. Uh, the Dalai Lama rejects the existence of objective reality. He, he writes this, so just as there is no chair to be found among its parts and no rose to be found among its petals, so there is no person to be found among its constituent aspects of body and mind. So even we, though we know that there is what we call our mind or our soul, there is a difference between that and the human body, but they are together. He is saying, well, if you look at a chair and just look at the leg, was that the chair? Is the back part, is that the chair? When does the chair begin and just the other parts end? So it's kind of borrowing on the idea that there is this, this body and soul uh, dichotomy that are also together and making something completely different out of it. So absent God and a creator and an understanding of how the soul interacts with who we are as a human, then you come up with something like this where you say there is no, there is no difference. You can't find the person um, in the body or the mind. It's just consciousness. This only makes sense if consciousness alone is what is real and people and objects are distinct only because we don't see them right. We don't see them in their energy state. We see them as matter or material, but they don't actually exist. Here's a quote from The Secret uh, where Rhonda Byrne says, or a few quotes, she says, you are God manifested in human form, made to perfection. You are God in a physical body, you are spirit in the flesh, you are eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being, you are all power, you are all wisdom, you are all intelligence, you are perfection, Anybody feel like perfection today? I don't, think, I don't think so. You are magnificence. You are the creator, and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. Man, that's some... Uh, you would not want to be accountable for saying those kind of things. But obviously, how many millions of books, or how, mu how much has she made off of selling these books because people say, yeah, I like that. that I can resonate with that. That sounds good. John Bradshaw is another um, proponent of this worldview. He says, each of us has access to a superconscious, creative, integrative, self-organizing, intuitive mind whose capabilities are apparently unlimited. And we'll talk about, they really mean that, that the potential for you, if you can connect with this overall consciousness, there's no limit to what you can do. And we'll give you examples here in just a little bit. This is the part of our consciousness that constitutes our God-likeness. So, Ultimately, I am God, you're God, every person is God. This is what new spirituality holds to, and it's described by, by pantheism. So everything in the universe is ultimately divine. What Rhonda Byrne and the secret in this worldview really is is a combination of monism, which says that the, the divine mind is the one reality. Pantheism says everything is that consciousness or that mind. So monistic pantheism is kind of what you get with the spirit and what uh, Rhonda Byrne is teaching. However, we add in 
prosperity uh, version, like an American version of prosperity, uh, romanticism, and making it more appealing, and now you get uh, what, what she talks about. The other thing you can do is harness consciousness to achieve perfection. So according to Toll, the guy we read a second ago, the biblical prophecy of a new heaven and earth will be fulfilled as more people harness the power of consciousness. So this is another example of where you know, we take some parts of the Bible that we like. We like that idea of a new heaven and earth. Things are going to be great at some point, but then we describe how we're going to get there is just by um, harnessing consciousness. Anytime this happens, and you see this a lot through different worldviews, where we kind of pick and choose, I want some of this, I want some of that, and, and Christians can be guilty of it as well. I know DJ remembers the rule that we talked about with reading the Bible is what? That's right, never read a Bible verse. And it sounds at first like, what do you mean never read a Bible verse? The key is A, like don't never read a Bible verse. You've got to understand the context around what it's saying. Who is it addressed to? Is it being addressed to us today? Is it being addressed to a different group of people there's quite a few verses that I won't go through right now that Rick has talked about before that people like to grab onto and put them on coffee cups and things, but it's actually not to us because we take them out of context. Just like we can do that, well, other worldviews like this one like to take certain aspects of the Bible and just kind of cherry pick and say, hey, look, look at what this says until you read the whole chapter, which again, those verses and chapters didn't exist until relatively recently then you see that's not what it's saying at all, but we need to always make sure that we're doing the same thing as Christians. So this uh, harnessing consciousness to achieve perfection, this gets you into what's called the power of attraction, and you'll read about this or hear about it, especially in uh, something like The Secret or those type of views that says everything is energy, including your thoughts. So your positive thoughts go out from you in some form of like vibrations, interact with the world around you, and they're going to come back to you in the same way as your thoughts. So if you send out positive thoughts, you're going to get back positive things from the world around you. Same thing, negative thoughts, vice versa. She says, your thoughts become the things in your life. Now, is there some truth to the idea that our thoughts make a difference? There is, for sure. We're told to think about things that are pure and excellent and praiseworthy, uh, taking our thoughts captive, there's all kinds of verses that talk about the things that we think about and that do we dwell on make a huge impact on our attitude, the things that we, our perspective on things. So it, it kind of resonates, right? So if you tell people, hey, if you focus on thinking about what you want to achieve or what you want out of life, and you tell people, the more you dwell on that and the more you have this positive attitude, you'll tend to get that back. Was well, that going to work sometimes? When you think about being kind to people because you're worried about your positive vibrations going out and doing the same thing back to you, which is ultimately a little bit self-serving, right? But if you do that, in a way, it's going to work. Not always, you know, depending on who you're interacting with. But that concept, there's a little bit of truth there. But again, we twist it and turn it into something different. But you can see there is actually some truth to uh, our thoughts making a difference in our life. Make sure I'm in the right spot. Okay, the Son of God is not Jesus. So here we go. We're going kind of deeper down the, uh, the heresy train here. The Son of God is not Jesus, but our combined Christ consciousness. Jesus achieved Christ consciousness, which we are also to strive for. That's obviously not right. That one should be a little bit easier for people to recognize if they are Christians and have read the Bible at all. Uh, Christ's life was important because it showed humanity how to achieve perfection, even Godhood. 
you should see some similarity there also with the Mormon point of view. Jesus was not God, but he was a good example for us, and so we should take some good things from that, but not think that he was actually divine. This is the same kind of idea. Uh, Christ's life was important because it showed, oh, I said that. Okay, so Jesus tapped into the energy field called consciousness. So all those things, what Christ did, he was there to be an example. Um, he tapped into this energy field, like, and that's what we can do, and that's basically how he was an example for us. Again, if you had read the Bible, and to any small degree, you would see those things are false. But clearly the people that are starting to believe this don't have exposure to the Bible, or they are just kind of picking and choosing what they're told that the Bible says. So what's the purpose of life then? Well, we have to overcome ourself, lowercase s. The secularist values the self-aware individual. That is the ultimate purpose, right? It's just self. New spirituality says you have to get rid of any sense of that because self actually doesn't exist. There is no self. There's just this broader sense of consciousness. So how do we do that? Yoga and meditation and through reincarnation. Now before we go on, if anybody's thinking, Kevin, are you going to tell me that I can't do yoga? Here's what I would say. There should be a great deal of caution because stretching is one thing, right? But often yoga is not just stretching and is accompanied by other things, uh, even if they're subtle, even if the environment is, you know, somebody's saying you need to open your mind and, and do one thing or another and it's not just a type of stretching. There's actually quite a few um, really respected Christian teachers that talk about this that say you should have a great deal of caution in doing yoga because in itself is, is stretching going to take you down this path? No, but you have to be really aware of what else is accompanying that. So that's obviously could be a much longer conversation and maybe we can talk about it more at the end if anybody has questions, um, but there can be a lot more to it. Uh, meditation, defining your terms is important, right? We talk about meditating on God's word. This is not that kind of meditation. It is opening your mind, um, seeking this sense of consciousness. The idea of an open mind is to what? Eventually close down on what is true. It's not just to stay open and be willing to accept whatever somebody tells you to believe. So let's talk about reincarnation a little bit. Living, dying, and being reborn until you gradually become more enlightened. So this is the idea of losing yourself into the, the universal self called Brahman. If you ever heard Atman is Brahman, Brahman is Atman. That's kind of this old Hinduism that says the inner self, Atman, needs to be lost in the, the greater self, which is, which is Brahman. Um, and our sense, what we see around us, that we have an individuality, that we have a, a separate soul, that we are individuals that are created that way, that's just an illusion per this point of, point of view. So you think about that, and how does that match up with the world we see around us? If you were living in an illusion, could you ever get out of that? Could you ever recognize, oh, I'm just in a dream, or I'm, I'm in, a, in an illusion? No, you're kind of stuck there. It's like, does Charlie Brown know he's in a cartoon? No, if you're in an illusion, it, there's no way of it, you know, removing yourself from that. You're essentially stuck there, but that's part of the idea is that uh, our idea of being individuals is just an illusion. All right, karma says that good comes back to those who, will, who do good while evil is returned to those who do evil. And each successive lifetime, a person must pay off his past karmic failings, suffering for and learning from past evils. Chiefly, the, the 
evil there is seeing yourself as an individual. That's what you're trying to get away from. So here's some major problems with that. When you ask people, well, do you know what you were before or what you did wrong in the past life? There's nobody that says, yeah, I actually know, and I'm trying to work on those things that I did wrong before. There's no knowledge of that past life. So not trying to set up a straw man of what somebody believes and say, oh, you believe this and it doesn't make sense and knock it down. But if, if that's the idea is that you're supposed to pay off a karmic debt, but you don't know what that was, what's the point? How, how are you supposed to fix that if you have no awareness of what your, your past life was? The other one, and I wish I would have thought of this, this is an example of what's called a taking the roof off tactic. Greg talks about this, uh, Greg Kokel does, where you take an idea, you let it play out to its logical conclusion. The, the Latin for that is reductio ad absurdum. So you let it play out to the absurd and see if, if that idea at its logical outcome, if it doesn't make any sense, then it's a bad argument or it's a bad idea. So you take the roof off, you let the sunshine of reality shine on it and see how does it do? Does it wither and die, or can it withstand you know, letting it play out? In this example, if the idea is that we became separated from the oneness of the universe in the first place, well, then there must have been a first incarnation of the soul, but then there was no previous life before that where you're having to pay off the karmic debt. So what do you have to fix in that case if there was no karmic debt before that? Does that make sense? So there had to be a beginning. It's almost like the cosmological argument of karma. I don't know if it's a good parallel, but how did we fall into individualism from that very beginning where there was no karma beforehand to pay off? That's kind of a taking the roof off of, of this idea. And then finally, if you're, if you're trying to pay off good or evil in this life, according to who? Where does that definition of good or evil come from? Because there's no ultimate source of morality that we've talked about anywhere in this worldview, right? It, it would probably, my guess, and again, not trying to set up a straw man for somebody who believes this, but it would be some sort of a subjective morality. Like, well, I know this is kindness or this is you know, the right thing to do. But if you don't have some objective moral standard, how do you know what you're supposed to do? Maybe your karma is you're supposed to you know, kill a bunch of people. or I mean, you don't know what the rules are in this system because there's no ultimate moral standard. Uh, to live by. So those are some problems that I see. The other one is uh, the end goal is you're going to be cleansed of karmic debt and lose your individuality into the stream of consciousness. That's where you see suffering and you achieve nirvana. One question I'd want to ask somebody about this is, are there examples of people that have gotten there? If this is an achievable thing, shouldn't there be some example of somebody who made it or is it just impossible? And if it's impossible, then it seems kind of like a silly thing to do. There should be some example where, like, where's Jim? Ah, he melted into consciousness. He's gone. <laughs> but there's no examples of that, right? So it, it, that would be a fair question to ask somebody. Okay, I'll go a little bit quicker here because I know we're getting short on time. Okay, as a worldview, remember, it's not an organized religion, but it still believes these things. God is not a person, but is a force. We gain wisdom by getting in touch with our God nature. The ethic is that we can live best by avoiding those actions, whoever defines those or whatever those are, that would condemn us to more miserable future lives. For biology, life is consciousness. The universal mind, there is no actual matter. And in psychology, we can live in greater mental, mental health if we're cleansed of ego. Now, do you think this, this worldview that seems kind of benign, 
Do you think it has nothing to say about what kind of society that we should have, the structure of laws, politics, economics, where we should go next? There is no worldview that has no say about, you know, what should we do? What should we enact into laws? And that's where sometimes politics, which I'm not getting into because that's another lesson, politics is essentially the process of putting morals and ethics codified into law, right? That's what politics is ultimately doing. The question is, whose ethics? If somebody's ethics are going to get turned into laws, whose ethics do you want that to be? I would like them to be the Judeo-Christian ethic, hopefully, because that makes the most sense. Um, and we see how that plays out over time. But even an idea like new spirituality, if that gets put into place, it's going to have an impact on laws, politics, economics, all those types of things. Okay, what about science? It believes science has been a destructive enterprise trying to control nature for the benefit of human beings. There's no need for a first cause because the universe was uncaused. That should ring a bell when you're thinking about, oh, this would be a great entry to talk about science, the law of causality. Is there evidence for a beginning of the universe? And if so, this is a really big problem for new spirituality. Uh, here's what the, the Dalai Lama says. From a Buddhist point of view, the continuum of substantial causes preceding our conception can be traced back to before the Big Bang to when the universe was a void. Actually, if we follow the line of reasoning by which we trace our continuum back to before the Big Bang, we would have to acknowledge that there could not be a first moment to the continuum of substantial beliefs of any conditioned phenomenon. What is he saying there? I had to read it a bunch of times. He's basically saying, our beliefs require a beginning not exist. Therefore, there's not a beginning. He's saying there must not be one because that wouldn't make sense with what we believe. So it's kind of backwards. It's not saying, here's the evidence for it. It's saying, our worldview requires it, so therefore there is no beginning. Does that make sense? Today, new spirituality advocates, they use quantum physics and mechanics to explain away a beginning. So you see a trend. They need there not to be a beginning, a defined beginning point, because that's a problem. Quantum mechanics uh, just gets into basically... You can't measure the speed and location of, of an electron at the same time because you influence the other property. There's a lot more to it than that, but basically because there's some unpredictability, there's some immeasurable part of the physical world, from that we must know that, well, we don't need a beginning. We could have particles and things popping out of existence for no reason from no one, and therefore we don't need a cosmic beginning. Obviously a big leap from those things, but that's kind of what they use. I just want to hit this quote uh, as a reminder from last week, Dr. Lewinson, uh, really smart evolutionary biologist from Harvard, mathematician, geneticist, he basically says, just like as a secularist, we say we have to presume that there is no beginning because we can't allow a divine foot in the door. You see a parallel there? Dalai Lama is saying we have to assume there's no beginning because it causes us a problem. Obviously, from a different worldview, where he would say there is only matter, but it's the same sort of the a priori. In other words, with no evidence, we have to adhere to a material cause, is what he says. In this worldview, it says, well, we have to assume that there's no beginning. We just don't have to give a reason for it. There's a couple other things that come out of this. Um, the Gaia hypothesis, I won't talk about that, but basically nature works together in harmony for the good of the, ho good of the whole You'd have to remember that as you're going through some natural catastrophe that, oh, it's just nature helping me out. Uh, there's ecofeminism, which is a fun linking of feminism and ecology, and uh, deep ecology that is uh, calls for restructuring of society, that all living things should have legal rights. 
If that seems silly, there's actually been a recent uh, case where I don't remember if it was we needed to pay land or animals some sort of reparations uh, for something in the past. Do you remember, Rick? So, you know, anything that you think is, is too wild to, to be real, it probably is already happening somewhere. Okay, where does Revelation, their source of Revelation come from? A good question that's part of those, uh, those tactics would be, why should I believe what you do? Why does your worldview make sense? They say that inner soul searching is their only proof of arguments that they need. They don't really need to provide evidence. It's that same sort of unfalsifiable claim that we talked about before, whether it was Muhammad's visions, if it's a Mormon that says, well, I, I asked God and he told me that Joseph Smith is his prophet and I had this burning that told me it was true. How do you argue with that? You can't prove that that's false, right? That's an unfalsifiable claim. And that's kind of the same uh, justification for revelation here. That's right. The, the Bible is no more the word of God than the Quran. That doesn't mean that they're all equal. You can see that quote up there. He basically says, you could take all of them and burn them in a fire because that's all that they're worth. One of their um, main proponents, David Spangler. It also, through their source of revelations, through meditation, channeling, astrology, firewalking, Ouija boards, uh, all things that scripture points out as being part of occult practices. Um, the Lifetimes magazine author said this. He said, my message to everyone now is to learn to meditate. It was through meditation that many other blessings come about. So that's your source of revelation uh, and again, obviously not the same type of meditation we're talking about. Whoops, that's the wrong one. There we go. What is humanity? Consciousness, not existence, is our ultimate nature. If we connect with our higher consciousness, we can transcend all physical limitations. In other words, a guy named Jack Underhill says, if you really get this done, you could turn the sun on and off, you could crack the earth in half, you could make it spin the other way. It's kind of a big claim and you ask, okay, where's, where's the evidence of someone who has kind of started to get that down and ha can do some of these things? There's kind of a lack of evidence there, but that's, that's kind of their idea is humanity could, once you connect with consciousness, there's nothing that you can not do. What about what's wrong with us? What is broken in the world? The opposite of Romans 3.23, essentially. The real sin is not understanding consciousness. Uh, you become good by finding the goodness that is already within you and allowing that goodness to emerge. Romans 3.10 is pretty specific about that not being the case. Only the unity of all can bring the well-being of all. When will that happen? The unity of all, just in a snapshot of the world that we see around us. Except being unified under Christ, there's no way a bunch of sinful people would ever be unified. So it seems like you would never get there to that point of well-being. How should we live? This is tricky because indifferent, indifference to suffering is the basis of a good life. Love and compassion make the problem worse. Christianity says to help people in need. Karma says a person's misery helps cleanse them of negative karma. So why would you try to help somebody? You're actually harming them. They're trying to cleanse whatever they did in the past that they don't know about. So if you were to help them, that's actually not helping them. So that doesn't really match with reality. Gandhi's a pretty revered person, right, for his humanitarian work. I didn't know this. He said that it was the Christian missionaries, not fellow Hindus, who awakened him a revulsion for the caste system and for the maltreatment of outcasts. So what inspired him to do what he did? It wasn't Hinduism. It was what he saw in, in Christian missionaries. This is encouraging. Per new spirituality, if something is wrong, it's because you will it so. So whatever is happening to you that's bad, this, this is the downside of being God, right? If God is in everything, God is you, if something bad happens to you, guess whose fault it is? 
It's your fault. So, I know. Man, I can tell you that. There's no compassion. There's no salvation. What about how it views other worldviews? Uh, we talked about this. You know, they, they say all, all religions are alike in what really matters. But that sounds like the aspirin and arsenic thing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Then they point out a bunch of things they disagree with. Obviously, sin and salvation, that doesn't work. Secularism is demonic. If only matter, materialism exists, and obviously, new spirituality is false. So it's a, an opposite view. Marxism, trying to change the world without changing consciousness is destructive. This quote was interesting. Even though communism was originally inspired by noble ideas, you could spend a lot of time trying to break that down. And then Islam uh, is always going to be a problem because it insists on being right, having absolute truths. Those things are really nasty, right? And trying to convert others. The idea with Islam, it says, it's always trying to inflict pain on other people because in the past, pain was inflicted on them and it just keeps getting passed on in this cycle uh, of emotional pain. So what are the conclusions for new spirituality? There's tens of millions of people in America that embrace it. Even though it has pretty shaky science, there's no need to provide evidence for what, what they believe. There's an overall indifferen indifference to the human condition. We saw this when we were in Thailand for a little while. Uh, poor people, people that were dejected, there was no point in helping them because that's just part of karma, right? They're having to live that out. So if you have extra money or means to help them, instead you go and give it to the temple you don't try to help others because that's just how karma works. You need to take care of yourself so that maybe you can change your next life. It's got a very muddled and unsubstantiated base for belief from what we looked at. And again, it's got an identifiable pattern of ideas, beliefs, values, and convictions. So it is a worldview, it is a religion, even though they kind of want to avoid that term. Christians are getting caught off guard by it. We always got to define our terms. If there's things that seem similar, we got to make sure we're talking about the same thing before we buy into that. Does anybody know who Richard Rohr is? Does that name sound familiar? So he is kind of the more recent um, individual behind the Enneagram. You just heard of that? I didn't know any of this. This is interesting. He is way into New Age, and uh, there's a big link between him and progressive Christianity. So there's a lot more you could research with that, but again, just with that one example alone, you can see how some ideas, if you don't understand where they're coming from, can creep into uh, progressive Christianity without people even knowing it. So here's the ultimate thing is, how do we reach other people that follow this worldview? How do we guard against it? We talked about knowing the scriptures, being able to recognize what it looks like. Ask questions of other people once we figure out that they hold these views. Uh, Greg talks about an example where he saw somebody with a, you know, wearing like a crystal or something, and you could just ask, "Oh, I see your necklace. Is that a, does that have spiritual significance to you, or is that just like a, you know, just a necklace?" And to say, "Oh, yeah, this this protects me from whatever," or "This crystal does this." Well, maybe you have an entrance there to ask some more questions and understand what they believe. Asking questions is not offensive, right? You can ask questions in a kind way and, and start a conversation. Um, even if you're not quite sure where it's going to lead just yet. Asking them, do you think your view adequately explains what we see around us? Does it make sense in the world that we live in? And then offering, hey, can I share with you some of the evidence that kind of led to me to what I believe? And taking the conversation there.
Here's some resources. Um, there's a lot more. I talked about Melissa Darty, uh, another one, Counterfeit Kingdom, the dangers of New Age practices in the church. Uh, and then there's another one um, that you can see up there. It's at STR, The Secret of Fatal Attraction, and it talks a lot about Rhonda Byrne and that book in particular. There's a lot more to that that we could even talk about. It's pretty amazing. And obviously, you know, somebody like Greg Kokel has... He's like a Rick Jones. He's like you know one of those one percent apologists. But we can still aspire to be able to maybe not answer as polished as he could under pressure, but to be able to know those things and say, ah, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about how textual criticism and, and translation of the Bible happens. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more to that. Let me take maybe one question and then I'll stick around afterwards if anybody has any more. And then I want to pray and let you guys go. Yes. That's a great question. Um, I would say starting out in apologetics and trying to just get the basics of what are these these terms and things like that. Uh, I hate to go to stand to reason too often, but they've actually made some really great training modules. Uh, and so if you go to str.org, there's some really great videos that even have like a quiz at the end to see if you understood what they were talking about on just about every major topic that you can think of, and they keep coming out with more all the time. So if I were trying to introduce apologetics to somebody, there's even a couple on there that are why apologetics and things like that. So, Rick, what do you think? Do you have any other recommendations? Yeah. Elizabeth Urbanowitz, is that what you said? Okay. There's um, Jay Warner Wallace. He's written Cold Case Christianity, and there's also a Cold Case Christianity for Kids. Um, he has a lot of great materials that he does for young people as well. Thanks, Rick. All right, I don't want to keep you guys too long, so let me pray for us, and thanks again for being here tonight. Father, you are the God of hope. You are the one that give us, uh, gives us joy and peace and meaning and purpose. And we're so grateful for that, and we take it for granted just knowing why we're here and uh, that we have the opportunity to glorify you with everything that we do in our lives. Uh, may we take that knowledge and our love for you and translate that into um, wanting to share it with the people around us. Give us compassion and kindness towards people that uh, we interact with and just help us to be aware of those opportunities to just start conversations and uh, try to do some gardening in their lives, knowing that the Holy Spirit is ultimately doing the work there. Please protect us as we go, and thank you for our time together tonight. Amen.